A number of years back, I did a, a mission trip that was down in Belize, and we were putting in some libraries in these schools, and we had a day off, and we went to the jungle, to the um, rainforest or what have you, and we did zip lining over the top of the canopy. It was really, really fun. But when we were done, somebody on the team bought me a shirt that said, uh, when was the last time you did something for the first time? And I wear that shirt sometimes, and people look at me. I get such wild reactions from that shirt. I know some of them, by the way, they're looking, think it's lewd, and I'm not trying to figure that one out completely. But when was the last time you did something for the first time? Well, today's one of those days, and uh, if you haven't seen the title, well, that was close to the title. I don't think she got it exactly right, but the, uh, this, was, this was from earlier in the week. The title of the, today's sermon is something I've never done before. And what it is, and I'm going to suggest, I'm going to bet that we're gonna, everybody in this room is going to do something you've never done before this morning. Because I'm going to do today's sermon uh, on the Apocrypha, from the reading we had from the Apocrypha. 19 years as a priest, I've never done that. And I know, like, immediately some of you are getting, are starting to sweat on this, thinking, oh my gosh, Bob's going to do a sermon from the Gospel of Thomas or some, you know, like, get out the pitchforks and the torches and, you know, we're going to have to do something here. But it's not that way, I promise you, and I, I, I will explain on this. Um, it actually is one of the readings assigned today that was an option in the lectionary that we took, and so we're going we're gonna to go into that. And I did check with the uh, liturgical police, and they said it was okay, <laughs> so I'm not worried, particularly on the day when the bishop's in the building. Uh, um, but anyway, that's what we're going to do, and where, I, where I'm going with this today is I really, like always, want to leave you with something to talk about at lunch today, but we're going to look at what, what is the Apocrypha, because I think a lot, a lot of us haven't really done anything with it. I, and I'm, along with that, betting that you don't know anything about this book, uh, The Wisdom of Solomon. So I'll give you a little introduction to that. And then we're going to look at the passage and the topic on wisdom. I'm going to connect it with our gospel. And then we'll, we'll, again, you'll have lots to talk about at lunch on this thing. When we start talking about the Apocrypha, we might ask starting first, like, what is it? Well, I would start by just telling you, first of all, with two billion Christians in the world, one of the things you ought to know is that it's used by the majority of Christians in the world. They may not know what it is, but they actually use it because for the, for the majority of Christians, and by that I'm, I'm going to say the Roman Catholics, it's in their Bible. It's just part of the Bible. They don't, it's not separated. They don't know any difference. It's some extra chapters that are in there. It's some extra books that are in there. I'll say more on that in a minute, but it's not separated. So they, if you ask them, what, what's the Apocrypha? They wouldn't know what you're t talking about usually unless there's somebody that studied this. But there are three kind of groupings of how people handle it. The Roman Catholics have it just mixed into their Bible. The Protestants, like a real Protestant, won't have it in the Bible at all. It's not there whatsoever. And in good Anglican form, we have it in there, but it's separate. It's like a little, it's a section in it. Um, to give you an idea, I brought my um, Bible I used in seminary today. And this portion right there in the middle, that's how big the Apocrypha is. And it's right in the middle um, that, where they put everything, um, all those books together and the bits and pieces in there together. And... Um, where it came from is it, it's considered part of the biblical um, heritage that we have. But where it came from was that the Jews that were not in the Holy Land we think of, but were off in Egypt and other places where they were Greek-speaking, the Hellenistic Jews, they translated the Hebrew writing, sacred writings, but then in time they also added to them. They wrote some extra chapters, they wrote some extra books, and all of that got put into the established translation of that canon in Greek, the Septuagint. And so whenever, you know, we had, the Hebrews went through the same kind of 
thing we did of figuring out what's going to be the established Bible. So in about the year 100 or somewhere in that t- time frame, they came out with their definitive list. They didn't include a lot of these books. Some scholars say because the Christians were already using them, but um, they didn't include a lot of these things. And so it's outside of their grouping of what they consider the Hebrew Bible. So what do we do with these? Well, up until the fourth century, Christians just used them because it was, the Septuagint was used by the early Christians. So it was used just like I was talking earlier about how the Roman Catholics used it. That's how it was used until the fourth century. Nobody thought anything of it. It was used fully like that. And then when you get to the fourth century, you get the, you know, you have the Latin side of the church and the Greek side of the church. The Greek fathers started making a distinction saying, well, this is that group. And then the, the famous translator, what have you, Jerome, was recognized that as well and said, okay, they're, they're different. And he's the one who came up with the name Apocrypha. Meanwhile, other writers, these famous writers like St. Augustine, they're just using them. All right, so that's the kind of the context for that. Then you get to the Protestant Reformation, and there's this push. We want to get back to the biblical authority. We want it just the way it was kind of its stuff. And they said, for whatever reason, we want just the New Testament in Greek, and we want the Old Testament just the way it was in Hebrew, and all these extra books you guys picked up from the Greek stuff out. So that's why there's not, they're not in the Protestant Bible. But it's never been that simple in a way because even Martin Luther, when he translated the Bible into the, to the local language, he put the Apocrypha as an appendix, which leads us to Anglicans. Like we always seem to somehow just find a middle way, right? The, uh, if you go back to the articles of religion uh, from the 16th century, what Anglicans said about the Apocrypha is that it's good for reading. It's good for um, spiritual reading, for learning ways of life, but no doctrine should be based on it. And that's what we said about it. And as I said, it got into the, it's in the lectionary now as it's been tweaked, and we had it for today as an option. I will also say one more thing just while we're on that topic is it's become much more important in the last couple hundred years because in the 19th century when people started doing all this historical critical method ways of looking at the Bible, the history that it provides in the Apocrypha is, became hugely important, like t- trying to figure out what happened between the Old and the New Testament periods and all this kind of stuff. So it's, it, it has a lot more weight today with what goes on with it. But anyway, that's, what we're gonna, that's where we're going from today. So as I said, put down the torches and the pitchforks and, and everything else. We're going to be okay doing something with this. The particular book that we are going to be looking at that reading is from the Wisdom of Solomon. And so I'm betting no one has, probably no one has read the, the Wisdom of Solomon. So I'll give you a quick context of that and then we'll, then we'll jump into it. But that's a, it's a book that uh, was written, you know, all the scholars looking at it say it's written by a super intellectual um, Greek-speaking Jew, probably in Alexandria, a Hellenistic Jew. That's who wrote it. And it's probably written uh, later. It's probably written like 38 to 41 A.D., from Alexandria at a time where they're being persecuted by Caligula. And um, it's an interesting side note that that's also when the famous Jewish philosopher um, Philo is doing his stuff. So he's one of these people who merged sort of the philosophy traditions and some of the Bible together kind of stuff. That's all happening in Alexandria when this gets written as well. It's not uncommon. The writer ends up taking on the identity of Solomon. That was a a thing that that was done back in the day that way. And so what the book is, the book is, is ultimately a book that is just, it's talking about the place of God's justice and wisdom. It's a warning against um, idols and it um, goes into encouraging people that are being persecuted. When you read it and you think about what the audience of this book is, 
on its face, if you go back and start reading this book, it will say that it's for rulers. It's for kings. Like he's writing this letter to try to tell rulers and kings and people how to be wise. But really, the audience is probably the Jews in Alexandria who are being persecuted because he's trying to encourage them and keep them away from, the pa- from pagan idols. That's probably what's, what's going on with this. The breakdown of the book, there's like four or five big pieces of it. It's got a big discourse where it's um, doing a discourse on the justice of God and how everybody's going to be subjected to this. It's got a big piece that's praising wisdom as our guide. It's a part that's lifting up wisdom as the key to history. It's got a portion that's talking about where, what are the origins of um, idols. And then it's got a final section that is on giving an example of the Israelites and the Egyptians from Exodus, that whole thing, and kind of applying it. That's, that's quickly the broad brush of the whole book. And that's uh, um, all the context I can give you. I think I've done, done a lot with that. So now that we turn and ask this question, this passage, this book, they're about wisdom. What are we talking about when we talk about wisdom? I mean, there are lots of things we could start with. I first think about a story I heard long ago that makes me think about wisdom. It's a story of the, of the small town where there was this good-natured guy, kind, everybody liked him. His name was Neil, but he was really, really uh, slow, let's just say. And so one of the tricks that people in the town would like to entertain themselves with is they would come up to him and they would pick, they'd pull out two coins in their hands and, and ask him, hey, which one of these do you want? And they would offer him a dime and a nickel. And he would always pick the nickel. And they thought that was so funny. And then finally one day, somebody, bystander, just couldn't take it, came up to him and said, don't you know the dime is worth twice as much? Why do you always take the nickel? He says, I know, but if I tell them that and I start taking the dime, they won't offer me money anymore. (laughs) Some wisdom in that. Like he He knew the facts. When we talk about sort of a secular definition of wisdom, we, we, we might talk about it in a number of ways. I'm going to read just a, um, a definition that comes from uh, um, just, just like a dictionary. This is like a basic dictionary. that it, Wisdom is knowledge of what is true or right coupled with ju- just judgment as to action, sagacity, discernment, or insight. I think oftentimes we think about it being something that's going to transcend knowledge. It's going like you know stuff, but then you, something more than that. I certainly know I've experienced the opposite of it when I've been foolish. I think of those exa- times when I've known the facts, known the law, known whatever it was in some situation, and I'm just holding my ground doing this without realizing that I'm losing the whole thing because I'm not seeing the bigger picture of, of needing some wisdom. Like, okay, this isn't about winning or who's right. This is about something else. Is that what we're talking about? Well, I know I'm already probably in trouble because y'all are like, he's doing all this stuff at us today. But the whole notion of Christian wisdom, I have to say, is really, really complicated. And it's about this point in my preparation where I said, did I already turn that title in? Is it too late to change it? But Christian wisdom is tough. And when you look at sort of the Old Testament version of talking about wisdom, they're going to talk about two, they're like a couple big strokes on this, but they're going to talk about human wisdom and divine wisdom. And when you look at the passages that are talking about human wisdom, they're going to say the beginning of it is fear of the Lord and that it's going to be this thing that's going to involve, it's going to be practical, but it's also speculative. And the examples that you're going to read about are the guy that's the great craftsman. He's got this wisdom. 
but it's also virtuous living and figuring out how to do that. And when you start talking about divine wisdom, it's going to be seen in God's splendor of creation, but it's also going to be seen in how God leads individuals and leads nations. And then you get to the whole category of wisdom personified, which is what's happening in our book today. There's actually wisdom is personified. So there, you could go on and on and on with this. I want to give you just a couple uh, quick summaries of some ways to think about this. One of the biblical scholars that I really like is the late Avery Dulles. And Avery Dulles said, well, there are three kinds of philosophy to look at. He, or, or, sorry, three, three kinds of wisdom. There's philosophical wisdom, theological wisdom, and infused wisdom. That's how he saw the world. And he said, when you talk about philosophical wisdom, he said, it's all these philosophers doing praiseworthy stuff. They're making a lot of progress on these big <coughs> questions about what everything's about, but they don't have revelation, so they can only go so far. And he says, but then you get to the theologians, and they've got revelation, and they're doing the same thing. And so they go a lot further down the road, but it's theoretical is what he says. So they, they get to where they are. And he says his final category is what he calls infused wisdom, and it's wisdom that comes on board, that's instilled. And um, the way I'm going to read one of the things he says about it, he says, the wisdom of the saints does not presuppose scholarly study. According to the book of Proverbs, wisdom invites to her table persons who are simple and lack understanding. She bids them to eat her bread and drink her wine, and in doing so leaves simpleness and live and walk in a way of insight. It's an invitation to come and see, to taste. I'm going to read just one more professor. This is Kathleen O'Connor. She says, ultimately, biblical wisdom is neither innate talent nor disciplined human achievement. It's a divine gift. Wisdom is something or rather someone to be sought after, to pursue, to pray for. But finally, it is wisdom who finds us. So there's lots going on with this, right? I know you've got some things to talk about at lunch already, but I'm going to keep going. So in our book, the book we're reading, you're probably not going to go back and read it, but let me just jump one chapter forward from where we were, and I'm actually going to read from the book, the book of uh, Wisdom of Solomon. This is how wisdom is described there. For wisdom, the fashioner of all things taught me. There is in her a spirit that is intelligent, holy, unique, manifold, subtle, mobile, clear, unpolluted, distinct, invulnerable, loving the good, keen, irresistible, humane, steadfast, sure, free from anxiety, all-powerful, overseeing all, penetrating through all spirits that are intelligent, pure, and altogether subtle. She is a breath of the power of God. And while remaining in herself, she in every generation, she passes into holy souls and makes them friends of God and prophets. So you get this idea of this personification and this, and there, her, she's present at creation and all these different things that are going on. So hold that thought. Now we go to our passage. The first part of the book, warning all these rulers, you're going to be judged too. And then our passage is saying, there's good news, don't worry, because wisdom wants you to have wisdom. Wisdom wants you to, to find her. And all you need to do is seek. That, that's part, and we think about for us, not trying to get practical, how's this matter to me this week? living stuff out. Part of what this is saying is wisdom is something we can have as we seek wisdom. That it's something that we can grow in some sense that way as we, as we submit and as we seek. I think part of it is a cry to see the world beyond just knowledge and facts. 
to see something, a bigger picture of what's taking place in it. And that's part of where we're, what we're going with this. I think it's, it's linked. Lots of scholars and people would say it's linked to God's spirit. So I think when we're praying for God's spirit to come and reign in us, that we're also asking for wisdom. And that's something we do again and again. When we think about um, asking for God's discernment and leadership in our lives is a way of asking for God's wisdom to be in us, for us to know more wisdom and to counter more wisdom. And this time of the year, we're doing that in all kinds of ways, but we're also doing that asking for God's discernment around all these campaigns that we're doing in the church and stewardship and capital campaign. But it's more than that. It's all of life. It's asking God to give us wisdom to lead us and to guide us and show us. All right. And the, the final thing I wanted to do today, because I know you haven't had enough, is just say one thing about the gospel lesson, um, because it does go into the wise and unwise and, um, and how we do that. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm convinced of nothing else today. If you don't have anything else to talk about at lunch, you're going to say, well, what happened to Bob today? <laughs> but anyway, the, the, it, this thing starts out to me looking like a joke, really, honestly. We've got, you know, you can hear the story. Well, there's this bar and these 10 women walk in. No, th- these 10 <laughs> bridesmaids are all waiting on, the, on this party. And, and it's going longer than they expect, and they're, get, they're getting to where they want, fall asleep, and they're short on, t- five of them are short on oil, and what do you do with this? And then you get to where the bridegroom's coming, and they're like, we don't have enough. Give us some. Like, you're going to have to go buy your own. And then the bridegroom shows up. The people that are in the parade go in. These others aren't. They knock, don't know you, you're out, and that's boom. And you're like, oh, gosh, that is a hard, hard passage because you're like where was the grace in this thing well I think I think part of seeing the wisdom of this if, if we can take it at least think about it today in a different direction is this not this isn't a funeral that's being talked about it's it's this party I don't think we necessarily need to jump and say that this passage is about the end of times or something but I think it's talking about being ready to encounter God which is part of wisdom of being ready seeking God in the people in the faces and the lives of the people that were around. That's part of wisdom is seeking God and being able to have the insight to see different things right where we are with the facts and the situations that we have. Man, if you don't have something to talk about today at lunch, we're all in trouble. Let's, let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you uh, for the gift of wisdom um, that people can gain insights that you give as a gift. We ask that you would give us wisdom Instill in us insights to see your hand at work in the world, to see your, your face and other people's faces as we surrender and submit to you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.